When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everybody, to your Thursday edition of the Athletic Hockey Show. As always, it's Ian Mendes and Sean McAdoo. Down goes Brown with you for the next hour or so. Uh, coming up, we're going to have a little bit of fun with that, you know, Ryan Hartman, Evander Kane situation and fans uh, paying the fine there. Sean had a really interesting piece about, is it a loser point? Is it a bonus point? How do we uh, how do we uh, tackle that? We're going to um, we're gonna hit on that. We got some great mailbag questions, too, uh, from... from uh, from listeners, including a, a fun Chris Kreider-related question we got on Twitter that I want to tackle. So we got all of that, a little this week in, in hockey history, and all of that is coming up. But I'll tell you what, Sean, I want to open up this pod this week. Uh, myself, Katie Strang, and Dan Robson had a piece that landed on Thursday morning on The Athletic. Um, kind of, all, I guess I'll, the best way to describe it is a very comprehensive, exhaustive deep dive into the ownership tenure of Eugene Melnick at the helm of the Ottawa Senators. I think that's the best way to describe it. It is a look uh, at his 19-year uh, reign. Uh, it's got some uh, good parts. It's got some bad parts. It's got some stuff in between. And obviously for me, and, and we're going to throw to, to, to something interesting here in a second because Katie, Dan, and I had a chance to have a a roundtable discussion, uh, and we're going to allow our listeners uh, to, to hear that. But I want to ask you for your takeaway, like when you read it on Thursday morning, because I'm genuinely curious to know what people think about this reporting, about this story. Like, are there some elements that that jumped out at you, or are there, are there things that surprised you, or, or what was your sort of takeaway from, from that reporting? Yeah, I, I mean, I guess I would start by saying that it's it's a fantastic story and, and all three of you should be should be proud of it. And I, I highly recommend that that anyone listening to this who hasn't seen the story already take the time to go and and give it a read. It's uh it, it is, as you say, it's very comprehensive and and uh well reported piece on a guy in Eugene Melnick who was uh he was a complicated person like like a lot of us and and he was a flawed person like all of us and uh it is uh, certainly not a piece that uh focuses only on the bad side which i i suspect is maybe what what some people were were looking for and it's not that it's uh it, there is you 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 can certainly sense as a reader the um, the strong effort that you guys are making to be to be balanced here, and and then certainly under the circumstances uh, with with his recent passing, that's appropriate. But but I think what really struck me reading it was that it didn't end up being for me necessarily exactly the story that I thought I was going to read. When I sat down to read this, I thought, okay, we're going to get some dirt here on what happened 
behind the scenes. What what happened with the players? What happened with Alfredson Carlson? What happened um, with his interactions with other players and uh, and that sort of thing? And and certainly there's there are elements of that in the story. There are some some absolutely bonkers anecdotes uh, of of him addressing players and uh, from people who were in the room um, that are that are pretty stunning. But coming away from it, what really stru- uh, st- stuck with me was that this really isn't the story of the Ottawa Senators players uh, or or even the story of the, of the people in the front office that we know. Th- this ends up being the story of people whose names we don't know and whose faces we wouldn't know, but the employees, the people who worked under Eugene Melnick, the people who worked for this organization, and what they were subjected to and what that environment was like. And you know, some of the stories about you know, late night emails, um, you know, a woman being called the C word, uh, the, the, his, his reactions to uh, some of the Black Lives Matters uh, stuff in, in 2020, his reactions to the team putting out uh, inclusive messaging about uh, uh, about the, the LGBT community. Um, and, you know, not just his views on that, but but how that affected the people who were behind that messaging or the people who were pushing for a different message. And, you know, what was it like to work here at this, at this company under this person? Um, and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's not Eugene Melnick's story. It's their story. It's, and it's a story that needed to be told and that, uh, you know, that these people wanted to hear told. And, you know, frankly, as, as much as I'm, it, Certainly sympathetic to the situation with Eugene Melnick, with him passing. It's it's a an awful time for his family and what have you. That that circumstances doesn't erase the stories of these people. It doesn't change the fact that that they lived through what what they lived through, and it doesn't change the need for some accountability at, in the senator's organization for what happened and and how it was handled and what does the path look like going forward. And and you know, frankly, I I don't believe. As a uh, not a senators fan, but as an Ottawa hockey fan who wants to see this organization thrive and do well, and for this community, I, I don't think it is served by pretending that the book is now closed on the Eugene Melnick era, and, and we all just go forward and uh, and don't talk about it. Um, I I really feel like you know I came out of it with the sympathy and, and a better understanding of what it was like to be around this guy, what it was like to work for this team, um, and uh, and with with renewed hope that it will get better based on the fact that that we can talk about it and that uh, that we can describe what was what was actually going on that uh, that none of us were were hearing about those days you know and and so in the interest of accountability and transparency i'm going to let our listeners uh in on a little roundtable discussion so again in in uh, full disclosure pull back the curtains um just based on timing of of this podcast we didn't know if it was going to work for uh for Dan and Katie to to jump onto this podcast. So we decided a couple of days ago uh that we would do a a round table and we had uh Craig Custance and Sean Gentilly kind of uh be the moderators so to speak of this this round table. So what you're going to hear now uh for the next uh, approximately 30 minutes and change. It's a round table discussion Craig Custance and Sean Gentilly again playing the role of um uh, kind of moderators, and then it's myself, Ian Mendes, uh, Katie Strang, and Dan Robson, 
And we're going to explain our rationale for telling the story when we did, some of the obstacles and barriers we had in trying to report this in, 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 in previous weeks and months. And we're going to hopefully give you some answers for why we did what we did and, and, and when we did it. Um, and we're okay to take some criticism. I, I want everyone to know that it's okay to, um, to, to criticize us. We're, we're here to take the criticism. We're not here to, to scurry away from it or anything like that. We're just simply here um, to explain why we did what we did. And again, have a listen. This is a roundtable conversation um, with the uh, the reporters who put together that story on Eugene Melnick. Welcome back. We are now joined by three writers who have spent months at a minimum, I would say, on a story, maybe possibly years on a story that dropped today at The Athletic on Eugene Melnick, an investigative report um, that covers the life of probably one of the most complicated owners and among the NHL's roster of, of owners, um, Ian Mendez, Dan Robson and Katie Strang. Um, first of all, thank you all for, for doing this and, and what an incredible job you all did on this story. Yeah. Listen, appreciate it. First of all, I love, I love being on the Tuesday pod. This is great for me. <laughs> yes. Uh, but yes. L- Congra- listen, I, congratulations. congratulations. <laughs> this is, yeah, this is the highlight of my week. Um, I, I would say though, you know what, for me, and, and you mentioned Craig that, look, this has been a story that's been in the work probably for a long time for a lot of people. I couldn't have got this done without the support of Katie and Dan and, mm-hmm. and their tireless work. Like this was truly, and I'll let them speak to this. Um, this required three reporters. I don't know of many stories that had so many tentacles that would require multiple reporters and three reporters. But this, as I think a lot of our listeners, hopefully if they've read this story, would understand it was such a, a layered story. It yeah. required three of us. It, I mean, it did. And first of all, if you haven't read it, hit pause on this. Go read it. Give yourself the, the context and just the you know appreciation for the detail. These are um, – it. it's – Almost impossible to do stories like this on people who are guarded, who are litigious, who are um, th- there's so many obstacles and barriers that go into this. And I'm I'm looking at the three of you now and the, the different skill sets you each bring to the table uh, as reporters and writers. And it really it you're right, Ian. It it almost took it did it took the the three like everything you all have and and to get it to the finish line. And so. Um, I, I do want to start there, Ian. Um, I mean, you understood. I, I remember talking to you even before you were here. Just you understood the um, the necessity to tell the story. I would say to Senators fans who um, who you know who struggled at times with what to think of the owner of the team, um, and also just your desire to to do it. And so let's start there. Like when when did that kind of hit you? You're like, hey, this is something the fans want and and really deserve to hear. You know what? I think for me, like the, tr- the the seed was probably first planted all the way back in like 2017, 2018, when you would start to hear stories about, you know, uh, I'm hearing people aren't getting paid properly, or mm-hmm. I'm hearing that there are there are issues internally, and it's a it's a it's a tough one, right? I think, especially as a beat reporter, right? Because what do we um, what do we pride ourselves on? It's access to the team, right? And so it's very hard to try and do those types of stories as a, as a daily beat reporter because it, it's predicated on access and your access will be restricted or, or, or dialed back. And so it probably, and I think if you talk to a lot of people in the Ottawa media 
they would have said the same thing. You know, probably four or five years ago, you could start to see this forming as a significant story. But obviously, um, I think things certainly accelerated in the last 12 months, 13 months, um, where where I think it, it it became evident to us, and, and and Katie and Dan can speak to this, that there was a story here, that this wasn't yeah. just conjecture, that there was something concrete and tangible here that that needed to be told to this uh, to this market. Yeah, um, I'm I'm going to move to Dan here and ask this question because so so what Dan does so remarkably well is as a reporter is he digs into a story, earns you know the trust of people, and and I and what was that process like for you in this in in this kind of coming in cold? And I don't want to make any assumptions. I don't know how much connection you had to Eugene Melnick or anybody in his life, but what was that process like for you in, in reporting the story? Well, at the start, I had um, zero uh, connection actually at all. I had sort of been, you know, reporting about uh, sports and hockey specifically for some time, and had heard not not as acutely as Ian had being so close to the team, but I'd obviously heard about sort of some of the things going on in the organization, and um, you know, I, I had interest sort of just as a journalist and looking into it a little bit. Um, the process for me was it was very interesting. I mean, I, I was able to get to know a few people closely, in particular, um, one of the. I think key characters in the story is Sirhe, um, a, uh, a close friend of Melnik's who um, he met uh, through Melnik's uh, work in, in Ukraine. And, and they became close friends, almost like a father-son relationship. And um, I've been speaking to him for quite a long time. And I think the the challenge with, with something like that is you're talking to somebody who does deeply love a man. He, he has um, a connection to him. But as we go through in the story, there was also um, a period of rejection and sort of seeing some of the um, the the ups and downs of of uh, Eugene's uh, personality that I think get played out. We we saw in other reporting, and, and this was a very intimate look inside of that. Um, and so being able to uh, speak with Sirhe and and sort of reflect exactly what he felt. I mean, I think it was also important to establish the love that he does still have for this man, especially after he's passed away and is reflected on it. Um, I, I think that, you know, relationships can be complicated. And, and I think it's, it was important in a story like this to, to in some way reflect that. Yeah. And then Katie, you, this was, this was a long reporting process. Um, a lot of phone calls, a lot of documents, and then it's already complicated. And then Eugene Melnick dies. And, um, it changes the tenor of the story. It changes. It changes a lot. Uh, what, what did it change from your mind and how you had to approach this story? In some ways, it changed a lot, and in some ways, it changed nothing. So, and mm-hmm. and when I say the latter, I mean this. From the very beginning, we sought out to do something very simple, which was simply to tell the truth. And, you know, it actually was for us more, I mean, it became more than just like telling and reporting the truth. It became like, we had to excavate the truth. I mean, that's how many layers of fear and paranoia um, that we had to really wade through to get at the truth. Um, And along the way, you know, it, you know, it became very apparent to us early on that there was a lot of complexity to this story, that the truth was going to be messy and complicated and at times unpleasant and unpalatable. Um, But in the conversations that we had after he passed, we sort of went back to the original goal and objective, which is to tell the truth. And Mm -hmm. that 
despite all those things that our reporting became, um, both when he was alive and in his death, um, we were not going to abandon our mission, like our goal, simply because it became very hard. And that was really important to us. And, you know, we had a lot of like conversations in the immediate aftermath. And, you know, one thing that Dan said that really like, you know, resonated with me in particular um, was, you know, we, we want to write a clear eyed account of this man's legacy. And so in that way, um, there was a bit of a recalibration. So I think when we were, you know, the majority of the time we were reporting and we were pretty close to the finish line when he did pass, um, we wanted, I mean, we were examining his sort of active imprint on the organization in a way that was like very real and ever present and ongoing. And so we did have to recalibrate to some degree um, for it to no longer sort of, I mean, not be so much as an active ongoing imprint in how does this get dealt with, um, but, you know, an overarching look on his legacy. Um, But, you know, I'm like, I'm so, like Ian has said, like, we were so lucky to have each other in like, you know, bouncing off of each other, really difficult subject matter. Um, but like, I'm, I'm proud that we like really steeled ourselves and stayed true to the original goal. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure that there will be some level of like mixed reaction to that. Um, but I think, you know, sometimes in this sport, like it feels like telling the truth is a very radical act and (laughs) I'm glad and I'm proud that we did that. Yeah. And and listen, if I, if I can just piggyback off that for a second, Craig uh, and Sean, um, you know, one of the things that I also thought was really important was after Eugene passed away, I went back and I'm sure uh, Katie and and Dan did too. um, I went back to a number of sources uh, who helped us along the way. And I gave it a few days and I said, how do you feel if we still report this story? Because it's their, and this is what's really important. It's their story. It's not our story, right? right. And it's it's somebody else's story. And it's and it's a huge responsibility um, and, a, and a privilege when somebody shares with you sensitive and personal information. And when something as seismic as Eugene Melnick passing away occurs, I think it behooves you to go back to them and make sure, are you okay? And I got to tell you, unequivocally, every single person I went back to, players, coaches, management, staff members, whoever, they all said, I hope you're still pursuing this story. The truth needs to be told. And I think what's really important, and I know we're going to take, we'll we'll take some criticism from some people who say, how dare you disrespect a person who's passed away. Uh, I think our response to that is simply, hey, listen, the truth doesn't have an expiration date, does it? Mm. The truth doesn't have an expiration date. And um, we set out, as Katie said, to tell the truth. We feel like at the end of the day, all we have to do is be able to look ourselves in the mirror um, and be be proud of ourselves and journalistically feel like we had integrity. And I think all three of us feel that that we can do that. And, you know, the other thing is like someone, you know, an employee said this to me once and it, it stuck with me. The person said, um, this organization is sick and it starts from the top down. And, you know, what the person meant was like that sort of the the nexus of the dysfunction could be traced all the way back to ownership in that, you know, Eugene Melnick's sort of behavior and conduct set a tone 
for what was acceptable and what was not within the organization. But that um, is very rarely like just isolated to one person. I mean, that had a very sort of like insidious effect in terms of permeating all aspects of the organization. So while, you know, that, you know, he obviously is, you know, not going to have a role in the organization from this point forward, I do think there was still a concern that like there are some things that have become so deeply entrenched and have been some sort of like inextricable that there's concern that this will continue to fester if the truth is not told, if there isn't some level of like accountability or reflection or, you know, when there's a sickness, when there's an illness, like the first thing to do before you remedy that is to diagnose it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think for us, it, it was really important for the people who provided us that gift of trust to have their experiences reflected in the story, their realities reflected in the story, their truths reflected in the story. Because um, to be like sort of seen and heard and understood um, is a really like important thing for people. And um, mm -hmm. every single person that talked to us, they took a risk by doing so. And they were not animated by having an ax to grind or being disgruntled. Whenever you report like a workplace dysfunction story, and those are really difficult ones to report, by mm -hmm. far the most animating <clears throat> um animating force is when you love an institution and you like have, you know, sort of an affinity for an institution or a team or an organization that you want to keep, like that there's a sanctity that you want to keep that pure. You want to preserve that love. And often that like, you don't want other people to endure what you had to go through. Mm -hmm. And so all those things, none of those things changed when he passed. And so that's what I think really galvanized our resolve to see this thing through. Dan, um, you mentioned Sirhe as, as you know, a really important part of the story. And to me almost um, captures the complexities of Eugene Melnick, right? Like it's, you see the relationship form out of good to, to begin. And then there's, you know, it, it turns sideways and there's, almost conspiracy theory, like some of the things that we saw publicly you saw in this personal relationship. Um, and then it doesn't, you know, then it, then it almost kind of redeems itself. It, it was, it was really, it was just this interesting character arc almost. And and I'm just curious in getting to know him, what did you learn about Eugene Melnick? You know, it was, it was a fascinating experience because I, I was obviously following the reporting that Katie and Ian were doing and um, just, and they were just, I mean, incredibly in-depth, relentless reporting. And we were getting a picture was emerging, I guess, of the organization as Katie was just sort of talking about. Um, and I, in speaking with Sirhe, and we spoke for a while before he was, you know, willing to actually speak with me on the record and and be part of the story. Um, I I could see these sort of threads bearing out in a in a personal relationship that weren't dissimilar to almost how. Uh, Eugene appeared to be treating the organization and people within the organization. You kind of hear the stories of of um, get, sort of being supportive of someone and gaining their trust, and then completely rejecting them the minute that it seemed like they were against him in some capacity. And seeing it with with Sirhe, it was um, I just think it was very um, 
pronounce in that particular relationship because it was rooted in in a in a in a friendly loving relationship it, it had been um it began out of a place of of you know altruism and genuine yeah. desire to, to help him and to bring him um, he you know he'd, he'd grown up in the foster system in ukraine and, and he came to barbados and, and lived in barbados and was there for a time and and had you know shared dinners with him and and had you know went to Burt's Bar, the bar where he used to watch the senators with him and throw his family around, and just had a real affinity for him. And Eugene gave him uh, his his dog, um, Stevie. He just sent me a photo of, of his dog yesterday. Actually, he still has him with him. Um, and and there's this sort of you know connection. But then when it turns, and it turns quickly and abruptly, and it and and almost completely. And it was you know as as we lay out in the story, it was it wasn't until. It wasn't, he wasn't willing to allow Siri any sort of engagement in his life unless the disagreement, which was over an alleged theft of $12,000 um, that, that had gone on between them until he'd admitted some sort of fault, even though, you know, Siri swore he had not had any sort of, um, any sort of uh, part in that. And so I, I think seeing how quickly things fell apart, I think it, it, it shone a sort of a, a very introspective look inside of how um, Eugene sometimes create had dealt with his relationships. And I think that when you can, you can extrapolate that through all the other great reporting in the story to see how the senators almost in a way that the fan base, everyone involved, um, sort of had that connection too, especially from the beginning, you know, the story starts with this glorious moment when, when Eugene joins the team and the Eagles concert plays. And, and this is the begin this new beginning for a franchise that was in danger. And he was sort of the savior coming in to, to fix it all. Um, and so I think that we saw some of those complicated feelings after he died as well. And, you know, people trying to talk about, um, you know, the man and to, to pay respect, which he deserved. Absolutely. But also to, um, to, as, as Katie mentioned, the sort of having a clear eyed look at, um, the the complexity of of how that played out. The involvement with Sirhe was, I mean, you don't want to say perfect because you, you you don't want to frame story elements that way. But that was Eugene Melnick in miniature, right? <laughs> Where he's mm-hmm. it's 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 it start it starts out or has that close personal relationship is you know father figure and all that, and then it derails. There's paranoia and there's and there's and there's money that's involved and there's and there's weird claims and then the end result is in the end result is complicated. Um, you know, I, I thought I, you know I, I go back to something you wrote immediately after he died, um, and you said you weren't sure whether he was a good person who did bad things or a bad person who who, do, who does who does good things, and I think that's such a it's an honest and I think, uh, you know, an honest way to sum up a difficult, a difficult relationship or, or and a, a difficult man. But I was, I mean, do you have, do you have, do you have an answer for that now? Like, have, 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 have you, have you, have you gotten a better idea of, of how to, of, of how, of how to treat his legacy and, and, and treat him as a man in full? No, I haven't. And I think that's what's so fascinating about this is that I still think it'll take a long time for us to absorb uh, this man's legacy, and I and I and I think you're right. The the relationship with Sirhei is the great illustration of that because here's a man mm-hmm. like you can't say that he's not caring because he at at the very end he tried to to or he did he sent him money to get his family mm-hmm. out of Ukraine. Like you don't do that unless you have some goodness in you, right? But at the same time, that that goodness seems to be offset by some uh, you know very toxic traits that that seem to create this very Look, I, here's what I think about Eugene Melnick. I think he's the last 
in the line. If you think of great, colorful, controversial, singular owners of sports teams, Steinbrenner, Ballard, Mark Schott, uh, Charlie Finley with the A's back in the day, like Eugene is almost a throwback to that. And I don't know how often you will see that again in professional sports. The singular owner who runs his kingdom in a very unique way and has all sorts of you know, larger-than-life personalities, I don't know that we're going to see this again. And to me, he, he remains a very fascinating character that I think we'll probably be studying uh, for years beyond uh, you know, our, our reporting here. When did you know that this was – I mean, obviously, it was always going to be a story. We all we, – we, we've covered and been around Eugene Melnick and the Senators for years. I mean, this is something that people have, been, have tried and failed many, many times to do. But when did it crystallize that Eugene Melnick was not just that this that, – that, that it elevated beyond just honestly weird rich guy behavior? <laughs> that, 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 that this was that this was systematic and 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 so, and something worth delving into, you know, to the level to the level that that you guys that you guys worked on it. Because I mean, because I mean, because it is we we'd, we'd seen the forensics investigation and then talking about Matt Cook and there was always these, you know, there were those threads um, that alluded, I think, to to to, some, to something like the story that you that you guys laid out, but but. It, it was also from the outside. It was like, well, that's just, that's just, that's just Eugene Melnick. He's he's the he's the he's the singular crazy, you know, uh, one you know last of a dying breed uh, NHL owner. So when did when did it you know like I said when did it crystallize that this is that this was a huge story and there and that there was something systematic and that there were power structures and and, and all that all that stuff that makes this a good story and a story worth telling in a way that is not just hey here's Eugene Melnick he's you know the wild man who 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 won the Ottawa Senators you know I'm actually interested to hear Katie and Dan's answer on this and I'm not trying to punt on the question I just think I'm so involved in it and I'm so immersed in it and I cover it it's sometimes really refreshing to get an outsider's perspective of hey. When did you realize that this was a story worth pursuing? And both of you have done over the course of your careers fascinating deep dives, person, uh, you know, um, features on people. So I'm curious, when was that moment for both of you um, that you're like, "Wow, this this is a fascinating story that goes, as Sean said, uh, beyond just the scope of a normal owner." For me, I think that was pretty apparent, like almost as soon as we started making calls in the. The I think the reason why was the fear was so evident. Um, mm. You know, as we wrote in our story, like people were scared to put his name in writing. People were terrified to talk to us. But it was interesting, like even the people that did not want to talk to us and said, hey, like, I'd love to talk to you, but I'm scared shitless about being, getting sued, mm. which was a very legitimate concern because he's <laughs> highly litigious. Um, or they'd say, you know, I signed an NDA, so I can't breach that contractual binding language or what have you. But it almost felt like every single person, even if they were terrified, we always got like a bit of a like, a, hey, I'd love to help, but I can't. But like, keep going down this road. Like, this is the right. You need to do this. Like, I wish I could help you. And maybe there's a time where I can. But this story needs to be done, but I can't risk X, Y, and Z um, to do so. You know, I don't, I, 
when this story took us a long time, I always like refer to big investigations like a pregnancy and this one like definitely reached the fourth trimester. Um, <laughs> and a big part of that were like sort of the institutional barriers, um, like the litigiousness, the NDAs, like the fear, the paranoia. Um, and we'll be honest, like there are people that are still scared. I mean, I mean, this is like pretty wild, but there are still people still scared to talk about him even after he has died. And I suspect that, you know, in, in the coming days and weeks, there will people who probably read and identify their experiences mm-hmm. within the story who might feel emboldened or more comfortable to talk about what they experienced as well. But it was immediately apparent what we were up against. Whenever mm-hmm. you write a story about like extreme, like toxicity, cultural dysfunction, there are like both sort of external internal um, forces that work to like thwart and stymie your reporting. And that was immediately evident in, in this pursuit. Absolutely. And I, um, I just want to you know, commend the, the work of Katie and, and Ian in this. And, and I, I've just, every time I speak with them, they, they'd have had conversations and were working when I said relentless, like quite constantly, this, this story hasn't sort of been on the back burner at all. It's been, it's been very much at the forefront of, of um, all her efforts and, and both of them did such an incredible job just going back to sources and trying to speak with them again and talk to them. And I know conversations I had um, to echo what Katie was just saying, I've written a lot of difficult stories, but I, in, the, as soon as I call and say, you know, this is what I'm writing about, just the, there's almost this pause of like a chill, like a, like a fear. And I, I think the first time I, I can think of one conversation where that was the first time I thought, okay, I've, we've got to keep going here. Like this, this isn't just sort of like, Oh, there's not, there's nothing to see here. There, there's clearly something to, to look into more deeply here. Uh, I think, and specifically for me, the, um, when, when the documents for the, um, uh, the internal workplace review um, came out and, and we were reading through that. And I think it was just an incredible, um, you know, look at underscoring everything that we had um, looked at in the past and, and, and been talking about it, it sort of said, okay, here it is. Here's a review. They had this information. We've known about this for some time. We know that at the heart of this, um, as it states in, in the review, there's uh, Eugene um, Melnick at, at the top of it. And, and when that, when that came out um, in terms of looking through it, I thought, okay, like this is just sort of in the, in the flesh here is, here is everything that's um, that we knew to be true. How much of the reporting and I, I think I know what the answer to this is going to be, but how much of the reporting that made it into the story was done before he died? 95%. Nice. I was right. That was my guess. Sweet. 95%. I win. <laughs> Good job. So, Thanks, man. And, uh, and like, we've had to, um, it, 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 Okay. So when, when you start on like an investigation like this and you start like maybe your initial month or two of calls, they're like a picture kind of starts to form. And what you have is you have on one pole, what you know, and then on the other pole is what you can report to the degree of specificity that you really need to preserve the integrity of the journalism. Right. And so your goal to get to the finish line is to move those poles so that they like meet, right? So that you can basically get out, you know, the essential stuff of what, you know, and like, you know, there were, with our goal being like, we wanted to tell the most complete, thorough, comprehensive, like narrative arc of his legacy. There were things that 
we felt were not just like germane, but essential to this story to be able to tell it right. And there's like that, it's like that um, theatrical or literary philosophy called like Chekhov's gun, which is like, you know, in a play, when you introduce a gun to the audience, you have to use that gun by the end of the play, right? And there were certain things um, that we learned about in the reporting process that once we knew were out there and existed, we 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 knew that we had like sort of a journalistic duty to fight tooth and nail for to include. Um, you know, that's part of what took a very long time. And I'm like, I'm really happy that we did. You know, sometimes patience can be really tough in a story like this. Um, but the more patient and dogged you can be, um, the more complete and nuanced and, you know, compelling story you can write. To me, I, the Chekhov's gun almost was some of those emails that, you know, that you were able to include. And, and Katie, I'll, I'll ask you this. What, if you're a millionaire athlete and you're scared to speak out about somebody, mm-hmm. which, I mean, that's that, that senators players were, and, and not, I don't know if scared is the right word, just reluctant or didn't want to. If you're just a regular employee of a hockey organization, um, there's a lot on the line when you, when you speak out or share documents. And, and I think, I think I learned as much about Eugene Melnick reading some of that than any other portion of the story. What, what, what did you learn, um, about what it was like to work for Eugene Melnick as at that level, as an employee of the senators and not in Daniel Alfredson or whatever? Well, I mean, I think you learn a lot about someone by the way they speak and treat people who either they view as subordinate to them or people that, you know, cannot provide them with certain advantages or leverage or have you. Um, So I think, you know, whenever you're sort of examining a power imbalance, the way someone speaks and treats someone, I think is really important and in that way that those emails were really revealing. Um, and, you know, some, you know, sometimes like sports reporting, it's treated like the sandbox, right? Like we're all just kind of playing around, having fun. Um, but the reality is like some of us yeah, don't, don't, um, name, don't name any names here. <laughs> um, workplace dysfunction stories are so hard to report um, because they're like, they're not really like a segment of your life. Like Mm -hmm. they, they really like seep into every part of your life. So what I hope people understand is that when you like, when you work in a toxic, abusive, shitty environment, when you have like a tyrant as a boss, like it doesn't just affect your work. It affects your relationships. It like disrupts your home life. It Mm -hmm. impacts your physical and emotional and mental health. Like, I mean, we talked to people that were in therapy that were like, you know, I mean, people suffered mm-hmm. and um, we thought like that, that really needed to be known um, so that people, one, don't continue to suffer, but you know, this stuff doesn't happen in a vacuum. And I think in hockey over the past, like 
year or so, I think there's been a bit of a reckoning about, you know, stuff that people speak up about um, and what's, you know, I think there's some reconciling of what's acceptable and unacceptable behavior. Mm-hmm. And I think it's pretty clear that his was beyond the pale. All right. Uh, we're, we're up against that. We're our 30 minute window that we had kind of carved out for this, but Ian, well, we started with you. We'll, we'll let you wrap up. Um, now that the story is out there, now that, that you're, you're, you're done with it. Like it's an emotional time. I know I, you know, talking to you guys, there's not a lot of sleep being had. It's, it's stressful. What are the emotions that, that you kind of felt through this process and and now that you're now that's out there? Yeah. You know what? And, And it's funny because, um, you know, I think for, for a lot of us and Katie can probably speak to this too for months, this story kind of became this urban myth (laughs) <laughs> amongst Ottawa fans. When's the Katie Strang story? Co- because when you, and that's a function of when you speak to so many people, they speak to people, they speak to, and so now people know that, hey, listen, the athletics working on something. So I think like my, my biggest um, uh, emotion is relief uh, personally, but I hope that it's also mixed in with a little optimism here that, that, that we can get to better days. And look, I'll, I'll put this into, in the terms that Gentilly can understand. Okay, because Gen- Gentilly, oh he, 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 he likes his slowly, my friend. Speak slowly. He likes his movie references, and I'm going to go Lion King with you guys here. Okay, <laughs> so if you remember at the end of Lion King when Scar and you look at the way that that uh, it was scorched earth, it was damaged. There was a couple of hyenas hanging around them. Well, guess what? Um, my hope is that the kingdom can return to where it was. Uh, when Mufasa was running this thing. And maybe Daniel Alfredson was Mufasa who got thrown off the cliff. I don't know. But that's how I feel. I feel like we're at that point at the end of The Lion King when Scar exits stage left and now we've got this opportunity for this great uh, new beginning in, in, in Ottawa where people can look forward to um, an organization that is responsible, that runs with integrity, and hopefully runs with some accountability and transparency. And that's, that's really what I'm hoping for here is that I'm, I'm hoping to walk away from this with optimism um, more than anything else. Sean, do you want to respond to him explaining things to you in cartoons? Or? Yeah, I would, I would just like to say that we're going to spend the entire third segment of the show <laughs> assigning Lion King characters to everybody throughout, throughout the history of, of, of the Senators <laughs> franchise. I need to figure out who Danny Heatley is. He might be Zazu, the toucan. I don't know. We'll mm, see. Probably. Well, Ian, Dan, Katie, thanks, thanks for joining us. Thanks for taking us through this this story. Uh, complex, hard, um, um, you know, impressive in its scope and reporting. Great job, as always. And um, yeah, thanks for doing this. Thanks, uh, thanks for having us. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank you, guys. All right. So listen, I hope everybody enjoyed or at least appreciated that conversation, uh, the roundtable conversation about. Uh, that, 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 that piece that we dropped and um, listen, I'm sure that there'll be more questions and we'll be certainly uh, willing to answer those in the, uh, in the days and weeks ahead. All right. Lots of other things to get to though, in the hockey world uh, mm-hmm. that don't have anything to do with that. And you know, the first thing I want to get to though, is the Ryan Hartman fine, Sean, for giving the finger to Evander Kane. And I love this movement, the Venmo movement of wild fans stepping up to pay Ryan Hartman. And I, you know, 
it's fascinating to me. Like, how did we feel about that fine, by the way, to Ryan Hartman for the middle finger to Evander Kane? Yeah, it's it's a fine. I mean, of the the NHL should absolutely fine a player for making uh, an obscene gesture in the middle of a game in front of uh, you know 18,000 fans and however many people are watching on TV it's it's perfectly appropriate um and it's uh you know I I don't I won't claim to know Ryan Hartman's finances uh, inside and out but I, I think even if he had uh, been forced to cover it on his own he he probably would have been okay and uh, now he doesn't <laughs> even have to do that cuz the cuz the fans jumped up but no I mean it it of course it should be a fine um, it, it was a small one as, uh, as we all know, that's all the league can do, uh, with these guys. So, uh, yeah, no, it was, it was the perfectly appropriate, uh, thing to find a guy for. Yeah. Listen, and, and, and to me, like the Evander Kane, like his ex jumping in and dropping in $200 into that, uh, GoFundMe type of thing was unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Like, and uh, yeah. like it's like, I, I always think about that line from a couple of years ago. Remember the NHL? No soap operas, just hockey. And anytime yeah. something like this comes up, I'm like, this feels like it's out of a soap opera that advantage. Doesn't it Kane's feel like ex. ever since they sent that tweet that uh, <laughs> that it's been ah. nothing but constant soap operas ever since? Like, I don't know what what monkey paw they accidentally uh, triggered <laughs> when they put that exactly. out, but holy smokes, it's uh, it never ends now. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, and I know that Mike Russo is going to be co- uh, connecting with Hartman at some point on Thursday, so. I would encourage our our, uh, listeners to check out whatever Mike Russo has on Friday uh, in regards to Hartman in the fine. I think it's going to be something pretty fun. So I want to talk about something that you put in The Athletic this week because this has been a crusade of yours for a while. And it's it's funny because it's, it's, in some ways, it feels like, oh, man, we've had this debate before, whatever. And then you read the comment section and you're like, no, this is clearly a, a, a point that people aren't tired of talking about if that makes sense like even though we've talked about the point system and loser points um there's still an appetite for that conversation and for everything to kind of be recalibrated 400 comments and yeah and counting exactly it was 380 or something when i looked yes uh, whenever i looked at it i'm like man this is north of 350 comments um what i want to know from you is and it's hard to get a consensus from 400 some odd comments but like, were there some takeaways from people? And again, the, the the article was just, again, talking about, is this a bonus point? Is it a loser point? And where we're at with three-point games in the NHL. Yeah. Um, and this is this comes from something where, look, if, if anyone has been following me over, you know, the course of my writing career, I've been banging this drum for a long time. I hate the loser point, And I call it a loser point. I've called it that going back to uh, the Grantland days where we're talking I mean, it's it's close to a decade at this point uh, where I have been, in my view, simply pointing out that the emperor has no clothes, that this system does not do what the NHL says it does. Whenever you push them on it, they say, well, it makes the playoff races closer. And it doesn't. And, and it doesn't if you even think about it for even a few seconds, because everybody in the league is getting loser points. It, it would be like saying we have a problem with income inequality, so we're going to give everybody $100. That doesn't fix the gap. And the playoff races uh, don't get any closer because you give every single team uh, loser points. And you know you might think that, well, the bad teams get more, and it doesn't really work that way. It's, it, there's, there's a small uh, uptick for the, for the worst teams, but it's not anywhere what you think it was. And I wrote about this a couple years ago where I broke down the numbers and said, look, this isn't doing what the league 
says it's going to do. Uh, and whenever I say that, uh, I always do have people who come to me and say, wait a second, though, you're calling it a loser point, but it's not. It's a bonus point. And I say, no, no, it's it's a loser point. You get two points for a win in the NHL. That's how it's always been for over 100 years. What is new in these three-point games is that the losing team gets a point. Therefore, it's a loser point. And, and other people say to me, well, no, no, that's not the case, though, because we used to have ties in the NHL. And when you had ties, each team got one point. And all we're seeing now is they basically brought that concept back. We have regulation ties. When you're playing five-on-five hockey, if the game is tied after regulation, each team gets a point. And then you get into these weird kind of skills gimmicky competition things like three-on-three overtime, like the shootout. And those are fun, maybe, but they're not real hockey. And so uh, those aren't real wins, but it's a bonus point. You get a bonus point for winning that, but it's a bonus point. The points, the, the two points that we're used to is a regulation tie. And I will be honest, for a while, I looked at that and I was like, that's a semantic argument. I mean, really, who even cares? Bonus point, loser point, the system's broken. But the more I thought about it, and the reason that I ended up writing this piece was I realized that how you view it is actually very, very important. Because for as long as we're stuck with this system, which it appears we're going to be in the near, for at least the the near to medium future, because the league has this demonstrated no desire to change it, whether you think it's a loser point or a bonus point really actually changes your view of of the standings and of these teams. If you look at a team that's got, you know, let's say they've got 15 loser points and you're going, man, this team stinks. They, they, they you know, their record might be uh, they've got 30 wins. They've got 20 losses and 15 loser points. Well, they're over 500, but no, they're not. They're losing more games than they're winning. This team stinks. They're getting propped up by a loser point. Somebody else might look at it and go, wait a second. They're three and 15 in overtime in the shootout. That's a good team in five on five, but they're getting screwed over because they're having bad luck when we get to flipping coins in overtime in the shootout, which we know doesn't really um, do a lot to demonstrate a team's uh, actual true talent and skill to us. So if, if it's a bonus point, you look at that team and go, that team is underrated. That team is better than we think. If it's a loser point, you look at the team and say, that team is way worse than we think. It really does matter. Now, to answer your question, did I get to a consensus on whether it's a loser point or a bonus point? No, not at all. I, it, it seems like it's a uh, a pretty even split, uh, at least based on the comments. Did I get to a consensus on what the system should be? No, absolutely not. And this is a big part of the problem is you know, even the people who say, yeah, the system needs to change. We all have our own ideas of what it should be. Everybody splits off into their little smaller camps and we don't achieve enough of a consensus to to really push the NHL on changing this. Here's the one consensus that I did see. I met, as I said, over 400 comments and counting, and it continues to go up. Every time I hit refresh, there's more and more people. And I have waded into the comments, and I've tried to read every single one. I'm not sure if I got them all. Maybe I missed a few, and I apologize if I did. But I, I have at very least read as many of the comments as I can. And without exaggeration... I have not seen one single comment from somebody saying, actually, I like the current system. I have not seen one single person right. jump in and go, wait a second, you're attacking the system. No, the system is good. The system works. I like the system. This is, um, you know, I'm in favor of it. And I can tell you virtually anything else that I ever say, because I spend a lot of time looking at the league and thinking about it and going, how could things be better? And I will very often jump in and say, I think this should be different. You know what? I don't like the puck over glass penalty. That should be treated like icing. I say that immediately. I have people jump in and go, no, no, it's fine. I like this rule. It's a good rule. 
And and okay, that's great. I mean, they're you know they're allowed to argue. I can say, yeah, they should make the nets bigger. We should increase scoring, and people will jump in and go, no, 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 don't don't do that. Keep the nets the same size. I I really like the status quo. There is not one person out there that I can find who seems to think that the current system is good, who seems to think that the way we're doing it right now is the right way to do it. And that is remarkably rare, certainly in the hockey world. I would imagine in the sports world that you can offer an opinion and say something is broken and nobody is willing to stand up and say the status quo is a good thing. And and I think that should be in, in a in a league that really cared about how it was perceived and, and you know what its fans slash customers thought of it, that sort of thing would be deeply concerning to the NHL. I'm not convinced that it is to them. I'm not convinced that they care at all. They, they, it seems to me that the 32 GMs who vote on this stuff are happy about it. And why wouldn't they be? It's artificially inflating their records. They're the only ones who benefit from it, um, but they're the only ones who vote on it. So I, I think we're stuck with it. But that's what really jumped out at me um, because you can't say anything about the NHL without everybody splitting it and saying, yes, I'm in favor. No, I'm not. And then they start yelling at each other. There's nobody in the 400 strong comments here saying, I actually like the current system and we should leave it as is. Yeah. And again, that speaks volumes. Like not even just one NHL employee that's, that's, you know, lurking on our site in the comment section, not even, not even they could jump in and and, and pretend that uh, uh, I like the three points. Apparently not. Yeah. N- nobody is sitting there. And and look, it's it, there are different reasons why people don't like it. But I I really feel like like I said earlier, it, it's it's an emperor has no clothes situation. When this when when we first ha- introduced the loser point in 1999, there actually was a reason behind it, which is that there were a lot of ties. There was a perception that sudden death overtime had become this boring five minute slog because. Teams were just playing for the tie. Teams got to overtime. They said, we got a point. Let's not blow it by going for two. And so it was a very, what should have been an exciting part of the game ended up being very dull. So I, I will give the league, um, I, I, I will give them that credit that they were fixing what was perceived as a legitimate problem in 1999. But then 2004, the shootout comes along. We don't have ties anymore. So we don't need this system anymore. And yet they keep it in place. They've tried to tell us it makes the playoff races closer. They will point out that the playoff races are closer, and they are, but that's not because of the loser point. That's because we have a salary cap. We have this era of parity. I mean, th- th- that isn't because of the standing system. Um, so, you know, there there really is no good reason to have this anymore other than that it makes 25 out of 32 teams be over 500 every year. It makes all these GMs look better than they are and, they can go to their owners and say, hey, I, I gave you a winning team. They can go to the media and say, you know, we have a winning record. They can go to the fans and say, hey, come watch us. We're over 500, even though they lost 10 more games than they won. That's the only benefit. And that doesn't benefit fans in any way. And I feel like every fan by now, it's been long enough that you've had the situation where, um, you know, yeah, maybe it makes sense in theory to say if we give points for losing, then, hey, even if my team loses games, we're still staying in the race. But by now, you've had the the situation where your team is trailing a race and you're looking at the standings going, hey, we won three games this week and we didn't gain any ground because the other teams ahead of us are getting these points for losing. And we've all had the experience of watching two teams that your team is chasing play each other. And you're just sitting there watching the game going, I know this game's going to overtime. They're going to play for overtime. It's going to be a three-point game. We're going to lose ground on both of these teams. This stinks. And, you know, to me, that's the real problem with the current system is 
you know, yes, a lot, does it look dumb that we give points for losing? Yes, of course it does. Is it confusing that some games are worth more than others and you don't know until the game's over how many points it was worth? Yes, of course, that is very dumb. But the real problem is in the third period, what should be exciting, it's a tie game, third period, this should be really exciting stuff. Instead, we get two teams just kind of batting the puck back and forth, playing for a tie. And people have looked at the numbers and they see that the scoring rates plummet the closer you get to overtime. Of course they do. You've given an incentive to teams to get to overtime. And so while overtime itself is a lot of fun and exciting, the third period stink now because we've incentivized teams to play for the tie. I've said, I wrote a piece a couple years ago where I said, look, if you actually want to make the playoff races closer, what you need to do is only give loser points to teams that are not currently in a playoff spot. That would actually do what the NHL says they want to do. That would make the races closer. If you were out of the race, you could get extra points. If you were, you wouldn't. It would it would put a little bit extra win behind the sales of the bad teams. But nobody wants that. And the reason nobody wants it is because the part that we've sort of skipped over when we talk about this is, you know, we say, well, it makes the playoff races closer. Well, closer than what? What's the second half of that sentence? The second half of that sentence is it makes the playoff races closer than they should be. And when you say it like that, suddenly everyone goes, well, the league shouldn't be doing that. You don't put your thumb on the scale and try to make the races closer. They should be as close or as not close as they deserve to be based on how the teams are playing and who's winning and losing. And that's it. So even the rationale the league offers, when you really think about it, isn't something that we should be wanting to see and supporting. Um, But again, it just feels like fans are so beaten down by this and so beaten down by immediately then arguing, okay, well, it should be a 3-2-1 system. No, no, we should just go back to ties. No, no, we should have the shootout, but it's two wins for a w- uh, two points for a win, zero for a loss. And it just ends up being this total mess of opinions. And it creates this perception that there's all this argument. And nobody can agree. So we might as well keep the status quo. And it masks the fact that based on what I'm seeing, an overwhelming majority of hockey fans do not like the status quo. And I'll tell you, a lot of them really don't like it and really get fired up when you talk about it. I get fired up. You can hear that. The fact that I've just monopolize the last five minutes. I get fired up about this topic. Um, and man, I, I I will tell you at some point in our lifetime, the league is going to change this system. And we are then going to look back almost immediately and go, what the hell were we thinking for however many decades we had this? And why are the standings all screwed up for decades and nobody did anything about it? Okay, real quick, before we open up our mailbag, we actually do, I'm going to jump ahead, kind of sneak ahead with a mailbag question because it relates to this. And um, the reason why I want to bring this up, because it's, it's about the loser point, bonus point. This is from Keith, who sent us an email. And Keith's idea, I'll just give you a real quick version, is um, basically what if the NHL, for these extra points, they, they took something out of uh, what Keith says is what they do in rugby, in rugby union, which is based on the score, you allocate the extra point. So Keith's idea is, what if the NHL decides to give out a bonus point if you score a certain number of goals in a game? Maybe it's three, maybe it's four, whatever it is. Is there merit to that? And that could kind of kill two birds with one stone. We want to kill, um, you know, the idea of the the loser point, but also we want to create some offense. Like, is there any traction to Keith's idea? Yeah, I, I will tell you right now. I mean, is there traction? I can't ever see anything like this uh, being instituted. But I, I have made this point Somewhat tongue-in-cheek in the past, but I've said, hey, if we're going to do bonus points, let's make it that if you you get a bonus point not for going getting to overtime, you get a bonus point for scoring five goals in a game. That's it, whether you win or lose. And if it's six to five, then okay, we'll give bonus points to both teams, I guess. I don't know how, how we'll 
we'll work it, but we'll we will give if if we're gonna just create points out of nowhere that don't come from anywhere, it's just the league sending the bonus point fairy over to uh, wave its wand over the game and and sprinkle some extra point dust down. Let's do it for scoring more goals instead of getting to overtime. Now, is that a dumb idea? Yeah, you know it might be. Are most fans listening to this going, oh, I hate that idea? Probably, but at least that would be a bonus point that would incentivize offense. It would incentivize being aggressive. It would incentivize being creative and and you know going out there and, and trying to score goals as opposed to what we have now, which is a system that incentivizes the exact opposite. It incentivizes play it safe, be conservative, get to overtime. Don't, you know, in, in, we're only five minutes away from this extra point appearing out of nowhere. We're two minutes away. Don't do something crazy uh, and and have a defenseman pinch or have a forward take a chance. And we've all seen that. Like, we've, we've all seen the last 30 seconds of a game where it's just right. one team with the puck behind their net standing there and the other team making no effort to go get them. And you're sitting there going, what is this? Well, this is two teams playing for the point. Uh, you know, I... I would love to see a system where we didn't have bonus points. You knew when you bought your ticket and you walked into the game, you knew exactly how many points the game was worth. But I will tell you, this system that's you know, being proposed of, hey, let's give out points for goals, um, it would be ridiculous, but it would not be worse than what we have right now. All right, we kind of uh, jumped ahead and, and, and did one mailbag question because it pertained to what we were talking about, but we do want to remind you that uh, you can send us your questions and we'll open up our mailbag at, at any time. The Athletic Hockey Show at gmail.com. The Athletic Hockey Show at gmail.com. You can also leave us a voicemail at 845-445-8459. By the way, I should have pointed this out earlier. Uh, because we ended up airing that roundtable discussion earlier, uh, we're not going to have Jesse Granger this week. So no Granger things, just... Uh, uh, due to the length of the show, but uh, we do have the mailbag here. So yeah, can can I just say by the way, I I am in favor of having the uh, the Tuesday guys host half the show for me. I don't mind that yeah. at all. Like I, they, if we want to make that a new policy and have Craig and Sean just come in and and do the middle half hour, I'm 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 all good with that. Yeah, it's um it's you know what it's uh, it's something we should think about, right? Like just have them. We, we tricked them into doing half of our show. Just, hey, listen, we just had to do this little round table. And the next thing you know, uh, we're just going to air it on Thursday. I like it. I like it. Yep. I'm, I'm all in. I'm all in. All right. Um, I, I got a, an interesting. You and I got tweeted at uh, on uh, Thursday with a pretty interesting question. This was something that was not on my radar. I don't know if it was on yours because you are the master of like kind of the weird, quirky stats. But Kevin uh, Lagowski tweeted at us and said, Hey, I'm noticing that Chris Kreider has 25 power play goals. He leads the league. The Arizona Coyotes as a, as a team have 25. The Flyers and Kraken aren't that far ahead. Has anybody outscored an entire team on the power play in a single season? Did you know that this was the case no. with Kreider and the, and the Coyotes? No, I had uh, I had not seen that. I, I will be honest, when, when I saw that stat, I, it didn't shock me, uh, given where the Coyotes are at, but uh, I did not know that, no. No, and okay. I didn't so, know the answer to the question either. So I'm I'm curious to hear. Yeah, so I actually did a little bit of digging on on Thursday morning. I said, you know, this is a great question. It's a, it's a really cool stat. So I went through, and now I now granted, I only and you tell me if this is wrong, but I had to kind of go through the seasons. But I went from 1994 until now because I figured in the 80s with the the amount of goals 
teams were scoring on the power play. There's no way any single guy outscored a team, right? Like, yeah, not no, and and, so, and I mean, yeah, no, it did it, it it couldn't be because I mean, what do you what is the record for power play goals? It's like in the 30s, I think. Yeah, so uh, Lemieux had a 37 goal power play season. I feel I feel like Dave Anderchuk held the record at some point. Yeah, but, uh, I, yeah, and, and it wasn't you know it wasn't some insane amount. Yeah, so I looked it up now. So there's a little bit of caveat here uh, because it ha- actually happened last year, oddly enough. But now that, I think, is a function of a 56-game season more yep. than anything. Leon Dreisaitl, Joe Pavelski, and TJ Oshie last season all scored more power play goals than the Anaheim Ducks. Remember, Anaheim mm-hmm. had a historically, historically bad... Historically terrible. 11 power play goals all season. So I thought, yep. okay, that that's kind of... I don't want to use the shortened seasons because I feel like... That's not as impressive as doing it over the full yep. 82 game run. Yeah, so now fake, I started fake, to, fake season, as some would say. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I looked it up. It hasn't happened, but it almost happened uh, just a few years ago. 2013, 2014, the Florida Panthers in the entire season scored 27 power play goals. Alex Ovechkin scored 24. So I think that's the closest we've ever gotten. OV okay. 24 power play goals, Panthers 27. Okay. That, yeah. So there you go. That's uh, I, so we have a chance to see some history here. Now, now here's my question: If Chris Kreider does beat the Arizona Coyotes in, in power play goals, like if he scores, let's say, let's say they're tied going in the last game of the season, he scores a late power play goal. If he smirks or scores that goal in a skillful way, do the Coyotes like get on a plane to go beat him up, or is it like <laughs> next year? How does it? Can we check with Tyson Nash and Tyson find out Nash what the what is you. the protocol on that? Uh, I, you know what? I'm gonna my recommend Chris Kreider just stay stone faced and uh, just keep shoveling in pucks in the crease, uh, and uh, we hopefully we won't have to find out. Oh my god! I never even thought that. That's gold. That's gold. be careful, but, Chris. But you know what? I think like for me, like I love this type of stat. Like I like I, I had no idea that this was even on the radar. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like that, that I, and I like, but I wonder, like, probably I would imagine, and now I got to look this up. I would imagine there might, there, there would be seasons where guys would score more shorthanded goals than another team. Right. Like that feels plausible. Yeah, that, that, that does. Yeah. I can yeah. see that. But not the That'll power be the next goals. thing. No. Yeah. Yeah. Get yeah. the intern on it. Yeah. <laughs> Down goes Brown internship program. Okay. I'm going to sneak one more in here from Dan. Dan writes into us again via email. TheAthleticHockeyShow at gmail.com. The University of Michigan hockey team has had a handful of players sign with their respective draft teams. Uh, Brendan Beeson uh, was uh, drafted by Vegas with their current cap situation. Uh, He could, in theory, uh, could Vegas, in theory, trade Beeson's, sorry, Brendan Beeson. Could they trade Brendan Beeson's rights away before he signs? And then that, that would make him eligible to play on a new team for the rest of the season slash postseason. I don't think Vegas would do this. I just don't know how this would all work. That comes in from Dan. Yeah. I, I mean, but first of all, my advice would be to check with his dad first because uh, he, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You don't, you don't want to mess he, with, with he, Pat. He, Pat might know the rules. Pat may have, uh, may have uh, a little bit more information on this. Um, I don't believe so. Um, it, it is, uh, there, there's sort of two levels to this question. There is the the question of can you make a trade after the deadline? This is something that comes up uh, periodically, where you know fans will say, 
you know, okay, well, when does the trade deadline end? Like, when does that the, the, that get lifted? And the reality is there, there really isn't a trade deadline. You could make a trade the day after the deadline, the week after, the month after. There is nothing stopping any NHL team from making any trades that it wants to make, uh, except that anybody that you trade after the trade deadline cannot play for the rest of the season. Now, that... Right. Is and this is this is another area where there's confusion because a lot of people think it's that they can't play in the playoffs. That's not the case. And Jesse uh, had a had a piece on this uh, uh, and how it could affect the Golden Knights uh, a month or two ago, uh, leading up to the deadline. And and he explained it very well. You if if an NHL player gets traded at any point after the deadline, they are done for the rest of the year. They can't trade. So you know if Genny Dodonov got traded today in order to clear cap room. He's done for the year. Now, that doesn't mean you can't. You could trade, for example, you can make trades involving minor leaguers. That happens uh, not often, but every now and then. You could make a trade involving an injured guy. You know, if somebody was hurt and shut down for the season, you could do that. Or two teams that were just Arizona and Montreal could say, you know what, let's just hook up on a trade. Who cares? Their seasons are over. We don't need these guys. Let's make a tra- let's let's jump the gun and get ahead of the offseason and make a trade. They could absolutely do that. Nothing stopping them other than you can't play for the rest of the year. I, I what Dan may be asking here is, is there anything in the fact that somebody hasn't signed yet and that you're trading their rights right. instead of trading them? I don't know the answer to that, but I can't imagine that 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 would be treated any differently. If, if you are traded after the deadline, you can't play for the remainder of the year. Now, they, they could absolutely trade them. They could get, you know, assets and, you know, make make a deal that made sense for the future. But as far as trading him to some other team that could then use him. I don't believe so unless there is some very weird loophole involving college players. And again, um, if, if anyone knows that to be the case, um, especially uh, Pat Brisson, feel free to let us know. Yeah. All right. Let's wrap up the show as we always do with a little This Week in Hockey History. Uh, take it back to a couple of dates. April 13th. I want to go back, Sean, April 13th. Oh, sorry, April 15th. April 15th, 1952. And a tradition starts at the old Olympia in Detroit, where it was a, a couple of brothers, the Cusimano brothers, I think it was their names, Cusimano brothers. They bring an octopus on um, into the arena and chuck it onto the ice, symbolizing eight wins you need to get the Stanley Cup back in the day. Starts a tradition. Um, I was looking this up, and this is an unofficial record. Do you know the record for the most octopus uh, octopi 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 yeah. octopi? Yeah, I was gonna say octopuses. But I'm like, that's not right. Octopi. Um, I was a little the, too eager to correct your grammar on that. Yeah, one. I'm yeah. I'm still the, fired up uh, on the loser point stuff. Sorry. Yeah. Seriously. Okay. According to and again, this the source is Wikipedia, so take it for what it's worth. What's the most number of octopi thrown onto the ice? Before a Red Wings playoff game, like what's what's your guess here? Because I for a I had, single game, yeah, for a single game, I'm gonna say what's the record, and it is a guess. I have no yeah, idea. I'm gonna say a half no dozen. I'm gonna say I'm gonna say six. Okay. In a 1995 game, fans threw 36. Oh my goodness! On the ice at the same time, it looks like 36. That is. Uh, <laughs> That's a that's lot more than I would right? have imagined. Like, I, and I that feels like too many. I'm going to go and say that's <laughs> yeah. too many. I, I love this tradition. I think it's fantastic. That 36 seems like like a little bit too many. Like Now, here's my question. Did like did poor Al Sabaka have to go and pick up every single one of them and twirl them around? Because that was always my favorite part of it. You know, you'd see the, 
you'd see the octopus in the ice. You go, oh, who's who's got to deal with that? And then this guy would come out, grab it, uh, and start swinging it around, and like the octopus juice or whatever would be spraying fan. Nobody cared. It was uh, it was fantastic. Uh, but uh, I don't. I mean, I feel like poor Al's arms. He's the dude's still got to drive the zamboni. Like he can't tire him out before the before the games even started. Thirty six is. Uh, too many. I think Al needs an intern if they're gonna if they're gonna go that crazy on it. No, but remember, did did Al and the Red Wings just parted ways, right? Like within did the they? last two weeks. Oh no, did they really? Okay, yeah. no, I haven't. Well, okay. uh, I, didn't well, know, now, I didn't know that at all. I know okay, that well, the, you know it, it, they had told him the the NHL at some point had told him he had to like stop swinging it around and and making a production out of it, which because uh, again the NHL has an entire department that's job is to figure out what is fun and interesting and and uh, and get rid of it. But um, no, I didn't uh, I didn't know that he may have uh, yeah parted okay. ways. So this is from March thirtieth from both the uh, Free Press in Detroit Detroit News. Al Sabotka, longtime Zamboni driver and Red Wings fan favorite, has been terminated by the organization. Wow. Multiple, multiple sources confirm. I, I hope that means fired, but, uh, you yeah, know, sounds ominous, but wow, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, and, and then the other thing, yeah, you're right. Remember, like, the ridiculousness of the NHL, and I think it was the Stanley Cup against, because I feel like I was there. Uh, it was the playoffs in in one of those years where Detroit – Ended up playing Pittsburgh. So either 08 or 09. Mm-hmm. And Al had to go into the Zamboni entrance to do it. Like like you said, he couldn't do it on the ice. Mm-hmm. But he, he took it to the, the Zamboni entrance. I, I, I'm, I'm actually surprised that this story didn't land on my radar if, if he's part of ways. And we, according to these articles that I'm kind of Googling as we talk, we don't know why. So we'll you know withhold any. Any judgment, yeah. but uh, wow! I mean, that's uh, it, it's again like the fact that it, it, going back to ten years ago or whatever it was that the league said no, you you can't do this anymore it was uh, uh, you know that was where some of the magic died. And, um, uh, and have they won a Stanley Cup since? No. Uh, so, there you go. Well, no, yeah, they, no, they did in two thousand eight. So that th- th- the only question would well, be, well, that's because was- it was still like had the you know. The, there was still some of the splatterings were right. making their way through the <laughs> They haven't arena. won the cup. Yeah, it's the uh, the 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 squid curse. So is it was Al Sabodka. Like, can you let me ask you this question? Can you name like you knew his name, right? Like you weren't yeah. like, wow, uh, you knew his name. Is there any other random arena worker in the league where you like, oh no. yeah. Yeah, yeah, the organist yeah. in in Anaheim I, is well. Let's just say I know the name of one other Zamboni driver. Yeah, uh, but uh, no, you're right. There's not a lot. I mean, I I know no. I could tell you the I could tell you some of the Leaf guys. Um, you know, I, uh, Jimmy Holstrom at the organ, of course, and uh, good old Banana Joe uh, between the penalty boxes was a, a Maple Leaf Gardens legend. But beyond that, no, I don't know. I I feel like every fan base probably has you know maybe one or two guys where they go oh no no this guy's the local legend but uh right. yeah al sabotka it kind of it it jumped from local legend to uh to more of a league-wide thing okay one other this week in hockey history uh april the 16th 2003 ed belfour makes 72 saves in an overtime playoff loss for toronto against philly and i need you to tell me what you remember most about ed belfour's 72 
save performance in the Stanley Cup playoffs. You know what? When when I saw that uh, that that you'd included that, I you know honestly, what really strikes me is how little I remember about that 2003 series. It is it is kind of strange that that was the one year in the Pac Win year. Uh, Paquin era from 99 to 2004, where the Leafs didn't even get out of the first round back when that was considered, um, you know, a, a, it was just assumed, of course, you're going to get out of the first round. What kind of team can't win at least one playoff round? Um, I don't really remember that all that well. Like, I, I it was Mark Recchi scored the winner. I can't really picture it. Uh, I can't really <laughs> picture like what happened in the game. I, I remember, um, a couple things about that series. I, I do remember there were a few overtime games. I remember that the Leafs um, won a game six to extend the series. And it was like Travis Green scoring the goal. And I remember that because it was with, with all the, the star power on those teams. It was unusual that a guy like that would get the goal. I couldn't couldn't describe the goal to you. And remember, I'm a guy who I could tell you everything about the 93 Leafs playoff run. With <laughs> right. No problem. So this isn't just like my memory failing or something like that. All I really remember about that uh, series is then going into Game Seven in in Philadelphia and the Leafs just getting absolutely crushed. And it was like Brian McCabe had the nightmare game with giveaways and everything. But other than that, that is a, a very weird kind of like blind spot in my in my memory of of that era of Leafs history. And by the way, if anyone is out there like screaming at me like, "Hey, it's you know Jeremy Roenick put them out of the playoffs," or Darcy Tucker hits Sammy Kapanen, that was two thousand four. That's the stuff that, you know, that, that we tend to remember um, was, I guess, the other thing I would wonder is it was the Roman Chechmanic year where he dropped the glove and, and gave up the goal that way. I'd want to know. Maybe that was 2003. Wait, maybe which was the Robert? Did you mention that now? Did you the Robert Reichel penalty shot year? Oh, yeah. That's was that another against one. Philly? Yeah, that was against Philly, wasn't it? That, what I feel was like that? that was against Philly. And was that against, uh, you know what? That's that's a real <laughs> good question. You don't know. know. Th- don't know the answer to that. This is a great game to play with Leafs fans. Was it 03 or 04? And mm-hmm. you just give random moments against Philly. And like, what's weird is I feel like you and I, even though Ottawa and Toronto met four times, 2001, 0, um, you know, 02 and, uh, and 04, if somebody mm-hmm. gave you a moment from one of those we would know. We would probably even know the yeah. game number. Oh, I feel like we would. Like I, like, it's, it, that's the thing. Like it's not yeah. like you know. It, like I know people are listening to this, going like, "Yeah, dude, it was twenty years ago. Why would you remember it?" Because I remember all this other stuff. It's just that one uh, thing. I'm looking at it now. Roman Chechmanic wasn't on the Flyers in 2004, so the the Chechmanic uh, glove goal uh, would have been uh, 2003. And uh, I'm I'm looking. I I don't think. Oh, Robert Reichel was on the. Uh, was on the Leafs back then. So um, that's still a question. I, you know, the, the Robert Reichel infamous penalty shot uh, that uh, did not did not go very well for him. Uh, 2003. 2003. I just, uh, I had to Google it. But uh, uh, 2003, it looks like, was the penalty shot or was it... Did you know Robert Reichel scored the uh, Roman Chechmanic goal? What? Yeah, he he was the guy. That this is why I'm getting confused here. I love I love how this podcast what? always starts off structured okay, and then on. it just ends with us Wait. googling stuff at each other. Twenty years. Robert Reichel was the guy who scored the glove goal on on Roma Chechmanic, where Chechmanic dropped his glove and uh, 
and and then gave up right. the goal. So that, this is what's confusing me. I'm sitting okay. here typing like yeah, Robert yeah, yeah. Reichel flyers in, and uh, but no, it was uh, it uh, it was 2003 because it was Chechmanic uh, stopped him on the penalty shot as well, and just. Man, I tell you, there, there's one thing about Leaf fans. We remember penalty shot. If, if you are unsuccessful on a penalty shot or a shootout, because Robert Reichel never lived that down, and Jason Allison never lived down the slow right. one against the Senators, yes. right? When he came in just a little too slowly. Whereas now, we see players do that all the time. We go, what a brilliant strategy. But he yeah. came in a little too slow, and that was it for the rest of his Leafs career. Oh, Jason yeah. Allison was an underrated, great player. Uh, for a lot of years, the NHL, but he's just like slow penalty shot guy to Leaf fans. So, uh, yeah, we have, we have long memories apparently about everything other than that 2003 playoff series against the Flyers. Yeah. And wait, Jason Allison's penalty shot was against Ottawa. It was the shootout. I think it was, wasn't that the very first, was the original shootout? Yeah. I think yeah, that the might one have been where Albertson the first the, one. Man. Yep. Okay. Okay. Well, listen, this is, uh, it's a good place which, to leave which, it. Which just makes it even funnier, right? Because like, Leaf fans, like the shootout is brand new. That was the first shootout in the history of the league. And like Jason Allison's the second shooter. And we're like, we've seen enough. We can, <laughs> we can judge. Yeah. We, yeah, we know. We're not going to like this. Yeah. Oh, man. That's awesome. All right, listen. We'll leave it there. Thanks, everybody, for listening to this uh, latest edition of the Athletic Hockey Show. Um, we'll get you again next Thursday. And I'm sure Jesse Grange will be back in the saddle for that one. Uh, in the meantime, you can email us any questions that you have to the Athletic Hockey Show gmail.com you can also leave us a voicemail at 845-445-8459 not a subscriber with us you can join us at the athletic.com slash hockey show get an annual subscription for a dollar a month for your first six months you can also um, subscribe to the athletic audio plus on apple podcast get all of our bonus content from our uh, entire network you will start with a 30-day free trial and then it's just 99 cents a month after that <laughs>